Hi, I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and thanks for joining me here today on The Communication Architect. Each week, we'll share content that will empower you to grow your personal leadership capacity through the development of communication competencies that build emotional health and relational resilience. We'll unpack some practical applications of interpersonal, intrapersonal, family, and organizational communication. And we'll connect with stories of transformation that will inspire you to achieve personal and social change. Now, let's build the scaffolding you need to become a communication architect. When King David was in his last days, Adonijah exalted himself and declared himself king. Sound familiar? We see this same kind of control and casual indifference with things like election results, where media somehow believe they have the power to define terms, to declare victories, to circumvent the will of the people. Interestingly, 1 Kings 5.6 notes that Adonijah had never been corrected by his father. In modern times, we would say he was a spoiled brat accustomed to getting his own way. And though Adonijah went to great lengths to proclaim his rule and convince others, and perhaps himself, of the kingship he tried to manipulate into being, in the end, he had to humble himself before the real king and accept defeat. As Margaret Thatcher once said, if you have to tell others you're a leader or a lady, you are neither. <laughs> As we talked about over the last few months on the individual and collective impact of media on our sense of self, our identity formation, I hope you've been sobered by the realization of just how persuadable we've become as humans in a culture that's constantly cocooned by media, socialized by its constant, subtle presence in our lives. And this really is encouraging news, truly, because we can change, we can grow, we can turn this ship around. As we've talked about many, many episodes during the season, the Romans 12-2 principle exists for every person at every stage of life. We can be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In fact, even at the molecular level, when we look at the field of epigenetics, we see that 95% of our genetic inheritance is malleable, changeable. We can change it. Only 5% of our DNA is immutable, unchanging, and that means we have tremendous capacity for growth and development throughout the lifespan. Our mindsets matter. There's a hope of change, of renewal, of caterpillar turned butterfly as people begin to recognize their own potential, their ability, even their responsibility for healing. Sociologist Dr. Barnett Pierce said, we live in a world where we're pulled in three directions, backward, forward, and upward. And the same triad of conflict is occurring constantly within our inner worlds as well as our outer worlds. Throughout history, there has been one beneficial agent of pro-social change that has risen above all others. Its potential is great, of course, but as many observers have noticed, that force has been dubbed a sleeping giant. Over the last 100 years, the government has thrown up its hands over and over and said, government can't do it. Give it to the church. They're the only ones who can make a difference. Does that surprise you? Consider these examples. Roosevelt sought funding for religious charities to decrease poverty and unemployment rates in the 1930s. Lyndon Johnson sought help in the 1960s for churches to create charitable nonprofit groups that would help combat poverty and urban decay. Clinton in the 1990s signed into law a charitable choice provision with the intention of moving the responsibilities of welfare from the government's back to the church's shoulder. In the 2000s, President Bush signed the faith-based initiative with the goal of putting compassion into action, getting churches involved in the community. In many ways, the local church is the agent for pro-social change in our culture. The church is the manifestation of the bride of Christ, the hope of the world, the hands and feet of personalized impact. 
There have been numerous government initiatives for pro-social change, and some may be well-intentioned, but none of them have come close to the power of the local church. In the mid-1990s, the U.S. government tried to create better student behavior through the school system, raising federal funding for, quote, character education in schools from just under a million in 1995 to $25 million in 2002. While about 30%, a small percentage of young people did learn about being more, quote, other-minded within the school environment with a $25 million investment, mind you, the vast majority, nearly 70%, said that they learned the behavior through a religious institution. According to the Pew Life Project, the study concluded that, quote, social service programs with a religious component are far more effective than secular government-run programs. Come on. Ultimately, the government found that, quote, faith-based organizations are the most effective agent for healing society's ills. The local church is the agent for positive change in our culture. Maybe you've heard the words of uh, clinical psychologist Henry Cloud, who's famous for saying 95% of our behavior is automatic, habitual, 5% is intentional, kind of fits with what we talked about genetically, that 95% of our genetic material is malleable, changeable, 5% statistic, static, 5, 5% is static. The path to change is to create an external structure that supports our internal goals. In that way, we become transformed by the renewing of our minds, that Romans 12, 2 model, by rethinking our neural pathways until new habits form. What we hear becomes what we say. What we say becomes what we do. That's true in a spiritual sense, and it's true in a scientific and biological sense as well. What's compelling about this concept is the predictability of behavior from a scientific standpoint, because it's the concepts that we're meditating on and talking over that impact our behavior. What we see, what we think about becomes part of us of who we are over time. So in order to change, we have to develop kind of rituals that serve that mission. What does that mean for us in the real world. It means that we develop an awareness of our world and our place in the world. It doesn't necessarily mean we need mean we need more information because we're certainly inundated with information in the information age. In fact, I'd say we aren't informationally challenged, we're more applicationally challenged. We hear, but we fail to apply what we hear. Forging new habits means we start taking seriously our role in community, that we take responsibility for how the words we digest through media affect us, as well as how the words we spew out affect other people. It means we recognize that knowledge is power if we do something with it. It means we recognize our interdependence. We're not islands unto ourselves, as we talked about a few episodes ago. Our actions in the world don't only affect us, they affect others who affect others who affect others. It means realizing that all that glitters is not gold and we must create a system of values that reinstates everything that's been lost since the values clarification movement. It means recognizing that not everything that counts can be counted and that there's joy that comes in small, simple packages, not just expensive ones. It means we need to apply some antidotes to the pandemic of media influence. We need to make wise decisions about our intake and be conscious of the power of socialization as a result of our neural and our sociological propensity for influence. We need to crack the cocoon currently encasing us, mobilizing that massive sleeping army within our midst, pulling our heads out of the sand, taking a stand, as Proverbs 31 puts it, for those who can't speak up for themselves, especially as we've been talking about, the impressionable children in our midst, the vulnerable. 
As a parent, I am deeply concerned about the world that we're fashioning for future generations. I'm concerned about the over-sexualization, the desensitization to human pain and suffering. I'm concerned about the number of children for whom emotionalism has run wild and they're taking antipsychotic medicines at the age of seven. I'm concerned about the anti-family values that the media is pouring out, the depth of brokenness from divorce, anger, adultery, perversion. I'm concerned about the doubling of obesity in children, about an increasingly intolerant anti-faith culture that stifles free speech and free thought in the name of commerce. But what I am encouraged about is the inherent potential that rests within each one of us. Our great country has battled so many monsters throughout its brief history, and we have proven ourselves to be resourceful, strong, and courageous. There are many practical methods you can take for monitoring media and take in your realm of influence. If you're a parent, you can visit media literacy sites with your children and practice becoming media literate, learning how to read media. You can invest time and energy into research and find out what's available, what's comprehensive enough to meet the needs of your family. If you and your family engage in entertainment media, you can do that together. Talk about the content. Watch kind of with one eye open, so to speak, knowing that the actions observed on TV can eventually influence the behavior of your child, the belief systems of your child. Avoid letting children have separate TVs in their rooms. There are many, many studies to support. That is not a good idea. Keep the family together in a healthy pattern of mutual accountability and definitely limit that screen time to less than two hours a day. Remember, heavy user couch potato status is two hours or more of screen time per day. And then watch specific programming rather than just like vegging out mindlessly in front of the fount of folly. Like junk food, we should consume junk media in moderation. If a show condones and regularly displays behavioral patterns you do not wish to see emulated in your own life or the lives of your children, consider the cost and stop drinking from that fount of folly. Given the importance ascribed to media, media personalities, media content in the Western world, it is vital that we start to think critically to utilize media literacy skills to avoid being pulled onto the undertow of the mass media pandemic sweeping our nation. In the words of the immortal Neil Postman, the book is, in essence, a, his book is an, a, a plea to those who recall, as he put it, sailing on older, clearer waters. And he encouraged us to pass on that safe, healthy, compassionate view to the next generation. Let's pause for a commercial break right now. When we come back, we'll unpack the formative foundations of our mindsets and discover how renewing those mindsets can activate your faith, reset your organizational culture, and transform your interpersonal relationships. I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and thanks for joining us here on Mindset Matters. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Dunn, and thanks for joining us here on Mindset Matters. Today, we're unpacking some practical tools that will activate your faith, reset your organizational culture, and transform your interpersonal relationships. In 1972, weather expert Edward Lorenz posited a theory that the flapping of a butterfly's wings in one part of the world could set off a tornado in another part of the world. The concept is known metaphorically as the butterfly effect, how seemingly small changes can have dramatic implications. One small shift in media modalities can create sweeping cultural changes over time. One small shift in human behavior holds the same inherent power. If media have played a powerful role in shaping culture in a negative fashion, then a small band of determined individuals, as Margaret Mead once put it, can change that trajectory for the better. 
two vital components of social behavior we've outlined in our time together over the last few weeks are the influence and shape that the the way that we influence and shape others through our beliefs and our behavior and the way that we're influenced and shaped by those whom we spend our time with. From childhood on, we are on a search for role models set in motion by that sociological and biochemical drive we've talked about. And as we've seen, hundreds of studies across the world, Harvard, USC, Stanford, numerous European universities, just to name a few, demonstrate that there's a powerful influence our virtual, quote, friends can have on our lives, just not, not just our face-to-face friends. We emulate the behavior of those that we admire, whether that's wisdom or folly. Proverbs 13.20 reminds us that he who walks with a wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Bad company corrupts good character. We mirror the behavior of others, and thus that butterfly effect impacts every one of our lives, for better or for worse. There's more to that media deluge than things like sassy teens sporting gangster apparel or the mocking of authority figures or even the rampant materialism plaguing the nation. Much of the pandemic of media centrality points to larger issues of concern. Goldsmith noted in the article, The Meaning of Celebrity, that we've blurred the distinction between, quote, fame and notoriety, between talent and its lack, between accomplishment and merely being well-known, between heroes and villains, he said. And when these synthetic personalities become our national heroes, he said, quote, it's a sign a society is absenting itself from the ethical judgment needed for social health. Our current generation of Western youth has been largely isolated from things like family ties, connected instead to a virtual family, whether that's the computer, the TV, the latest celebrity, or even a friend. The parent needs to be returned to the driver's seat. As authors, doctors Neufeld and Matei write, there's a compelling scientific evidence that shows the vital role that parent-child attachment, not peer attachment, plays in mental health. And certainly for those who identify with the faith-based lifestyle, like many of you do, there are other troubling cultural issues that must be considered in light of this cultural shift. One of the most profoundly problematic of these may be the lack of connection to the written word. The rapid decline of reading scores means that comprehension levels have reached an all-time low in modern Western civilization. And if that trend continues, how will the next generation understand and be challenged by the writings of the faith? How will they hear the still small voice of God when they're constantly bombarded by a cacophony of voices blaring at them from all directions? As Warren noted in Seeing Through the Media, this indiscriminating experience of media consumption is, quote, not conducive to the refinement of critical faculties, logic and imagination, linguistic precision, historical awareness, or a capacity for long, intense absorption. These, and not the abilities to compute, apply, or memorize, are the desiderata of any higher education, and it is critical thinking that can best realize them. If the critical thinking capabilities that permit us to come and reason together, to think, to inspire, to invent, to create, to lead positive change, if these are absent from our collective cultural personalities, who will lead us into the next wave of industry or technology or morality or creativity or education? These are serious questions to be complicated because we are the visionaries. We are the gatekeepers of the next generation. We're the guardians, the defenders of the faith. If we don't speak up, who will? If we believe our children are a generation worth fighting for, if we truly believe in the principles of faith and truth, then we must be compelled to stand. We must be compelled to act. 
But the problem is too great, you might say. It's overwhelming, impossible work. Are we strong enough to fight the current and swim upstream to begin redirecting the water source? I believe we are. And the answer to that question lies not in just one of us individually, but in all of us together. Again, one of the greatest resources for pro-social change is the local church. If the citizens of our well-endowed nation begin spending less time, quote, amusing ourselves to death, then we will be likely to less likely to subsist under that veil of narcissism, materialism, isolationism. We'll discover a new meaning for life. We'll graduate from self-centeredness and become connected to the welfare of others. Instead of living in a television-induced stupor, a mass media coma, we will awaken. The inspire of life will be breathed into us. The cultural shift will free up entangled resources of time, energy, finances to truly make a difference in the next generation. But to do this, we need to arouse some sleeping giants, and we need to connect our creative resources to their intrinsic drive for the common good. A few years ago, I read a letter from the greatly respected organization focused on the family. It was at a time when donations had dropped to critical levels and they had to cut back a lot of their staff. And the president, the then president, said this in a letter to his supporters. He said, yes, we are in a dire financial situation, he said, but don't defer money to us if it will mean you can't give to the local church. Now, why would a powerful organization like Focus on the Family deny its its desire for money if it meant it was going to cut away from the church's budget because they understood the inherent power of the local church. They understood that the church united is a powerful force of social change. I remember years ago in California, a young church decided to donate its sparse resources to an abandoned shantytown in Africa where thousands of AIDS orphans were eating daily from garbage dumps to try to stay alive. This young church was able to build a working, sustainable community with a school and an orphanage where villagers would learn viable trades that would help stop the spread of AIDS. Through personal and social responsibility, they learned to garden, to care for themselves, The vision began in the heart of one person, one singular person, and now it's touched a village of millions of people. Another church in Florida makes annual trips to Uganda and other poverty-stricken regions of the world, bringing to these destitute areas talented surgeons who perform free operations for the villagers. It's called a medical missions trip. They provide eye surgery, repair birth defects. They bring hope to these villages. And Instead of living for the pursuit of material pleasures, these men and women give of themselves to change someone else's world for the better. One small group with a common vision can make a significant impact on the world. Gladwell's book, Tipping Point, puts it this way. We have to abandon this expectation about proportionality. We need to prepare ourselves for the possibility that sometimes big changes follow from small events and that sometimes these changes can happen very quickly. Gladwell gives an example of a professor in in California who was inspired by some of his principles and started trying to leverage connective support to tackle a social need. But he found that the teachers nor the principals, they didn't want to take on assignments in gang criminal ridden behavior, gang environments and criminal ridden environments. They, even though they knew help was needed there, they didn't accept any incentives from bigger salaries to smaller classes. They didn't budge until the professor discovered the impact of community. He selected some top principals and he gave them a year to assemble their own team of top teachers. And together, they all felt capable and motivated enough to accomplish that goal that none of them was willing to tackle alone. It's a great example of the power of community. 
When a few determined individuals come together with focus and intention, they can shape society for better or for worse. The persuasive position we've been talking about, the persuasive positioning, we find ourselves there today. It's largely a result of media centralization and that tragic timeline we talked about of social disconnect, the results of a culture that's embedded so deeply in media socialization that it's lost its moral anchor and its sense of purpose. Those of us who are looking around the bend at the potential ramifications of this current trajectory are the ones who have to initiate the efforts of change. The flapping of one seemingly insignificant butterfly wing in a small farm town in southern Illinois can set off a thunderous waterfall of sweeping social change across the nation. Maybe you are that butterfly. Mass media does not have the same identical effect on every individual, every family, every community, of course. Now, it's not to say that it doesn't have predictable effects on a significant portion of the population. Cigarette smoking doesn't cause lung cancer in every smoker. Alcohol consumption doesn't cause cirrhosis of the liver in every drinker. But these products have to be labeled with the potential dangers in order to educate and protect the general public. Mass media should fall under the same guidelines. Education and media literacy programs should be offered at schools, community centers, churches, anywhere that social change is discussed and deciphered. It's not okay to sit back and hope that the next generation will just turn out okay. Cultures do not improve with inertia. It takes the sustained and collective efforts of courageous men and women to direct, or in this case, to alter the course of history. An old ride at Epcot Center in Orlando, Florida, once took children to a magical land of the future where computers talked to moms in the kitchen, where grandma could play a game with a computerized opponent, where big sister could talk on the phone and actually see her friend on the screen as they spoke. When I boarded the ride as a child, it seemed amazing, futuristic, impossible, a scientific fantasy that lay completely outside the realm of possibility. But today, when we hop on those little cars and travel through time, the ride's not so impressive because that future is here. Those high-tech dreams have been realized. Computers talk, play games, transport, transport images every day. It's commonplace now, but once it was an impossible dream in the mind of creative imagination. In similar fashion, will you imagine the world of a future with me? Will you imagine a world of caretakers who hold seriously the responsibility of stewardship for the planet they're leaving behind for the next generation? Can you imagine a world where parents don't ship their young children off to be raised by someone else for eight or 10 hours a day, but where they share together in the growth process and the rich and joyful heritage that comes from being a parent? Can you imagine a world where belongingness is not represented by a clothing label or a shared innuendo from a TV show, but from a sense of connection to what really matters, family and friends, real friends, not the intimate strangers on TV or the thousands of transient names listed on a social media account, genuine friends. Can you imagine a world where crime is the exception rather than a rule, where the broken men and women of the past have been given hope and purpose, they have meaningful work and families that truly love them so they no longer seek attention through harmful antisocial behaviors? Imagine a world where citizens can think for themselves without the interposition of media, where they can form opinions, where they can discuss and debate ideas, fostering growth as individuals and as a culture. Imagine a world where a foundation of respect allows people to agree to disagree and to listen to the viewpoints of others in a mature and open fashion. I believe this world is within our grasp, and I believe it is not only our right, but our obligation to begin laying a foundation for this world, a better world, a stronger world, a safer world. 
And unlike the villagers in the emperor's new clothes who allowed folly to rule and reign in their city, may the next generation to follow after us be able to look back on our decisions today with gratitude instead of frustration, knowing that we cared enough to pay the price, that we were willing to push forward, to ask difficult questions, and to begin to develop a healthy sense of self outside the lens of media socialization. May we all have the courage to step out and discover our purpose, our place, our passion for the sake of the next generation. Our true identities and theirs will depend on it. Thanks again for joining us here on The Communication Architect. If you have questions about today's episode or if there are topics you'd like to see us address, send your comments via Instagram to at Dr. Lisa Dunn or via email to contact at drlisadunn.com. That's D-R-L-I-S-A-D-U-N-N-E.com. And remember, strategic communication will help you build greater emotional health and relational resilience. So don't miss the next episode. I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and I look forward to talking with you next time right here on The Communication Architect.